Today's podcast features a conversation I had this past June with two of my favorite people, Dr. Zach Bush and Sasha Stone. If you're not yet familiar with Dr. Zach Bush, then, and you should be if you're tuning in and listening to my books because I reference him quite often, but you can find more information about him on Facebook and Instagram at Zach Bush MD, as well as his website. In addition, I highly recommend you check out his regenerative agricultural movement by following Farmer's Footprint also on Instagram and Facebook and at that website. This conversation um, was captured when we were just starting to understand what was happening with the COVID pandemic, and Zach addresses the issues of glyphosate and pollution as contributing factors. But in addition, I think some of the questions that Sasha um, asked Zach, you'll find quite entertaining. So thank you for tuning in to today's show. Enjoy. So I think it takes an incredibly clever and beautiful soul, uh, such as yourself, to be able to answer the most reductive questions. So I'm going to ask them unashamedly, um, what is a virus? The, the virus is a communication network of genomics, and uh, it's the most important building block for life on Earth. And so we have vilified the very mechanism by which biology has happened on the planet. And this is a, a tragic mistake for science, I, I, you know, certainly for humanity and for economics, it's been tragedy. But I have a deeper concern for science itself that we have allowed as scientists and physicians the demonization of nature. And that is a really sad thing. We, 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 uh, we are given such an honorable position to be able to be witness to nature with the most powerful tools ever developed, microscopes, telescopes, genomic sequencers. I mean, we, we are getting a glimpse into the very depths of how life has occurred, not just on the planet, but within the universe and how biophotonics and physics actually produces the, the building blocks for biology to occur on a planet and how that planet can then emerge with this bioactive, always regenerative, always eager to communicate, always eager to create more bounty and more biodiversity. And that life is what we have vilified by trying to convince ourselves and, and each other that these viruses are attacking us. It is very important for us to all just consider that viruses are not living beings. They are not like bacteria and fungi and protozoa and archaea. Vi viruses are packages of information that are secreted by living organisms. They also are, you know, very simple arrangements of, of physical structures, amino acid uh, type, type uh, building blocks that will go on to build those amino acid proteins and all of that. And so they are a template for life to develop and uh, they are, never have enough information within a single virus to do something to a human. They can participate in many different, you know, pathways in human biology, but there's not enough genetic information in a single virus to do something horrific to mankind. If that was the case, of course, a virus would have killed all of us long ago. Viruses, though, are integrated into our biology, and we get to decide which viruses we turn on and, and reproduce and which ones we don't. And so it's the train within the cell. We now know that genetic you know, en engines or machinery that will determine which genes get turned on within our genome, which viruses will enter and be transcribed into you know, DNA within our genome or you know, reproduced in the cytoplasm and secreted out to the world again, highly controlled mechanisms by which we do this. And so this is not like some accident. It's not like some you know, infection that can take over all of our machinery. The RNA is a very passive you know, situation with this coronavirus. It's a very passive gene that moves into the environment of our cell, and then we can either reproduce that or not. And as we've seen with this, this situation with corona, is uh, the vast majority of people uh, are, are taking this genetic update and have no symptoms to that. And so this is a genetic update to our species that's expressing an adaptation to the stress that we've induced on the planet. Beautiful. Thank you. Absolutely beautiful. Um, the, the, the next question is also a fa fairly obvious one is um, given that uh, the virus is an, is, is an excretion or an exosome, 
Um, it's not something which is able to leak from one human to another, presumably. Um, so the idea of two meters social distancing and uh, wearing a mask that costs you 20 cents, I mean, how absurd is that theater? Uh, it would make sense if, if the, the particles that we breathe, so these respiratory particles that they keep telling us about that can travel three or six feet, if that's the only way viruses traveled, then that would make some sense because viruses are, uh, once we go into a, a production phase of a virus, meaning that we have decided that we're going to reproduce this thing. And so we need to, to make this thing, this adaptation needs to be spread throughout our body and throughout you know the environment around us to help proliferate this update. And so we're giving this genetic update to the environment once we start into that process we make that into a smart delivery system and so we will wrap it in the correct receptors to get that to the right position within another cell in our body or to another you know external target and in the case of coronavirus it tags a receptor called the ACE2 receptor in our lungs vascular tree and the rest so that it gets to the right cells to get the right genetic information into those cells and so it's a very intelligent distribution it's not just like random like spewing of genetic information and it just goes out there to infect whatever it touches it it needs to have an intelligent uh, you know design behind it as to where that's going to end up but as it turns out we know very well that viruses were proliferating out around the whole globe long before an animal ever breathed and so these were building the fabric of life from fungi and plants and everything else the the viruses were slowly building the complexity and diversity within the genetic code of the planet and humans for example mammals as a whole whole 50% of our genome was built directly by a virus insertion. So a virus inserted a piece of DNA and or an RNA got reverse transcribed into DNA within our genome. And we kept that as an important update. These are critical. There's We now know that without uh, retroviruses, for example, like HIV, that all these retroviruses account for about 10% of our genome. And our, our genes that are updated by retroviruses or given to us by retroviruses allow us to do the very things that allow for resilience and regenerative capacity within our body. Stem cells actually can't be a stem cell without the gene from a retrovirus that was inserted a couple million years ago in the mammalian code. And same thing with a placenta, in fact, which is, gets really interesting. We could not have a placenta without the viral genomics uh, that we adopted from from the environment. And so we would not have had the first mammalian birth without the intelligence of the virome building that, that intelligence. And so we are, again, vilifying the very fabric by which life was built. And by vilifying that, it leads to all kinds of ridiculous mistakes in the, in the public health sector. And so to think that we should mask our way away from viruses is erroneous on many, many levels. Number one, Respiratory droplets that are being stopped by that is only one mechanism by which viruses spread. Again, they spread all over the world through aerosols, these airborne rather than waterborne respiratory droplets, airborne and tagged to things like dust particles, carbon in the atmosphere can tag, tag the virus, and it can carry around the globe. And so there's nice studies out of Europe showing that when a virus is, is, is discovered in humans, you can then go up into ice caps and other you know, desert environments of Europe and find the same viruses showing up at the same time. And so it doesn't take human travel. It doesn't take airplanes to move viruses around. Viruses were moving around the earth for billions of years. They didn't, wasn't waiting for humans to invent the airplane. And so this, this CDC kind of model of, oh, this plane flew from here to there, Sure, that can cause that infection in that individual, but if you just waited three weeks, that virus was going to coat this, the surface of the planet anyways, you know, and so it's, it's this, this perception that's always so narcissistic. We're so human-centric in our worldview, and we try to make biology fit to us as if we're, you know, the machines that are moving it, and we're the machines that are distributing it, and therefore we need to be blocked. That virus is for the planet. That coronavirus was updated to all mammals on the planet. It wasn't just for humans. All mammals yeah. have the ability to absorb that virus. And then everybody's like, well, they're not getting sick. 
Well, of course not, because they don't have the cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and, and you know everything else that we we have. And so it was we were dying from our morbidity, mortality, and, and our messed up biology from our toxicity. And so this virus that spread around the world didn't cause you know massive death and in other you know large cats in the jungles or whatever it is. You know the the, the ACE two receptor is abundant within all mammals, and yet we don't see the same same you know disease pattern. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And so, that, I mean, that goes some way to describing why why we're dying from exposure to uh, to this particular uh, the toxicity of this particular virus. Do you want? To, is there anything more you want to add to that? Yeah, this is you know, a really important mistake uh, that we've again made in medicine. And uh, you know, I, if there's physicians and scientists and nurses listening to this, first of all, I want to just thank you for your effort. I know how exhausting it is to be in a hospital when there's a crisis at hand, especially when you feel poorly equipped for it and you feel like you you can't help the patients that are coming to you who are suffering and, and dying, and you you don't feel like you have the right tools. And so, my hats are off to all of you who have been on the front line. It is exhausting. It is uh, overwhelming emotionally. It is overwhelming physically. And you feel like, especially when there's a story of some deadly virus, you feel like you're putting yourself in harm's way and your family's in harm's way by being in those hospitals. So hats off to all of you who have been on those front lines. But what we saw, you know, is going to take us, you know, months and maybe years for us to really you know, seep into because it's a devastating story that we created in Western medicine here is that we reached 88% mortality rates in New York City in the most, you know, medically advanced society, you know, apparently on earth, we created the highest mortality of any virus ever seen. Ebola has a, has a mortality around 30% and we hit 88% in our ICUs. Nowhere else in the world did we, did we see that kind of mortality uh, happen. And so why are people dying if Zach is right that this is just like some benign genetic update that we're supposed to get. Like, why are these people dying? If there's not enough genetic information in that virus to cause death, then what's causing the death? And so that that took some research uh, when this started happening. I, I was trying to figure out why this coronavirus, you know, and what I found was that 2002 mimicked the exact same thing. And so SARS, it turns out, caused blue patients, hypoxic patients, that a few days later, their lungs would fill with fluid and then they would die of multi-organ failure in the weeks to come. And so that's exactly what was happening with these patients here in New York. And I, I didn't get that story until there was a nice Instagram post from one of the New York docs on the front lines. And he put together a beautiful story saying, we're, we've got something wrong here. These aren't infections. These people are showing up hypoxic at levels I've never seen before and talking to me. They're not infected. They're not like acting septic, but they're hypoxic from the moment one. And then they get worse and worse over the days that follow and respiratory don't work they seem to make it worse and put them on a ventilator uh, they they tank and so he was just a call to act you know for help and so when I heard that they were turning blue then we knew that okay they're showing up the same way SARS did which was another coronavirus and, and, you know, and very similar to the current one then you look at 2012 MERS out of the Middle East same pattern and so we now uh, can say, okay, there's a pattern that developed somewhere around, you know, the 2000s where coronaviruses, which has been with us since, you know, 740 years ago, there was a very well-documented coronavirus, you know, situation. 1,200 years ago, there's a suspected coronavirus situation. Um, so, you know, we've got a, a pattern of this virus for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then suddenly there's a change in its behavior uh, or our behavior around that virus in, in the late, you know, 90s or early 2000s thousands <coughs> excuse me and what happened during that time was a ubiquitous in introduction of a chemical into our food system uh, through genetically modified crops which was called glyphosate or roundup and that uh, compound happens to block the production of some very specific amino acid building blocks for specific proteins. And one of the proteins that is very reliant on these essential amino acids that are disrupted by glyphosate happens to be a gene that builds our relationship to viruses. It, it's a gene that produces an enzyme that, like, like scissors, cuts up the DNA of viral genomics when they come into the cell so that we don't overexpress this DNA. 
And so around the advent of glyphosate and Roundup, we see this event of an abnormal you know, relationship built to this. I'm going to slide out of the sun while we're talking. Um, and so an abnormal relationship is built to these as we lose the enzyme control mechanisms by which we stay in a balance with these. And so through chemicalization of our food system, we disrupt the, the homeostasis of this virus in our, our genome. And then around that same time, we see the explosion of air pollution in China in particular, other cities around the world for sure. But China became our most toxic air polluted space in the world in the late 90s and leading up into the, the new century. And so uh, by the time we're looking at 2006 and all that, you, you are getting pictures of Beijing where you can't even see the skyscrapers. It's just like buried in, in pollution. And it turns out that around that time, we were able to show that coronavirus and influenza bind to a particulate carbon particulate in air pollution. It's called PM 2.5. Particulate matter 2.5 microns is a measurement of this tiny carbon particulate that can bind many things in the atmosphere, including things like cyanide. And so when you have viruses that are being produced and go aerosolized, as they should, they will bind and clump on PM 2.5. So now you don't have even distribution of genetic information, you have clumping of genetic information that's now tagged to go to the lung uh, through the ACE2 receptor. And now you've got a delivery system for cyanide that's tagging that same PM 2.5. And it turns out that cyanide poisoning presents with hypoxia, blue patients, who a few days later will present with multi-organ failure and disseminated intravascular coagulation or blood clotting in tiny vessels, and they'll die of multi-organ failure. Cyanide poisoning has been a long-standing you know, story of how people would kill each other in the, dark, in the dark ages and everything else. We've known cyanide causes this thing that we call histotoxic hypoxia for hundreds of years. And so it turns out that as soon as that New York doctor, you know, described what he was seeing, it was like, oh, that's, that's histotoxic hypoxia that they're seeing. And then, you know, I gave a few podcasts on that, trying to get the information out there so that people would start treating cyanide poisoning. So that's actually super easy to treat and almost free to treat. It costs like $10 for a cyanide poisoning packet, it's sodium nitrate and two other injections. You give those and three minutes later, the patient should be reversing their cyanide poisoning. And so instead of a three month hospital stay, racking up millions of dollars of, of bills for these patients that are surviving COVID, a $10 package of cyanide uh, you know, kit should be able to, to reverse this whole process because you change the shape of the hemoglobin that's been poisoned by the cyanide. Now, is it really cyanide? It could actually be a, a dozen at least other chemicals that are carried in high uh, concentrations of air pollution. And so the virus is, intended to enter the body through the ACE2 receptor into the bloodstream, but now it's tagged with all these, all these uh, kind of Trojan horse chemicals that we've produced in our energy and transportation sectors into the air. As we see PM 2.5 drop in China, as soon as everybody was pulled out of the streets, suddenly everybody stopped dying from coronavirus. It was like somebody threw a switch as soon as PM 2.5 went below 40 parts per cubic meter. And so it's very profound that it was not social distancing, it was not masks, it was the drop in air pollution that best matches this. Uh, the article out of Harvard that, that mapped uh, air pollution quality in, in the areas of high mortality showed that for every one particle per cubic meter of, of PM 2.5, for every increase in that level uh, by one, uh, one microgram increase, there was a 10 to 15x risk of death. And so one extra particle, you know, per this, you know, cubic meter and you have mortality increase. And so it, it would be impossible to find any other risk factor greater than that. And if we look across Europe, the most heavy PM 2.5 in the country is Northern Italy. Pockets in Germany, pockets in the UK, exactly where we saw it. Highest in the US, New York City, Louisiana, four corners of Colorado, out into uh, parts of uh, the Northwest. And so all the pockets of the highest mortality around the Western civilization occurred in these areas. Hubei province, highest concentrations of glyphosate and Roundup in the soils that would have disrupted our relationship to the genomic scissors no longer working, and the highest particulate matter of PM 2.5 in the world. 
And so Hubei province was where this thing had to begin, really, because we had created the, the environmental stress that would encourage the virus to occur in the first place. The virus, again, is an adaptation signal to the world saying there is crisis, there is toxicity, there is need for change to happen genetically. Here's the genetic update. And then it gets tagged to PM2.5 and can now travel the whole world attached to carbon particulate matter in abnormal clumps. And so we were set up with this kind of chemical toxicity that's now circulating around the planet to poison pockets that were predisposed. And those patients that died were cardiovascular, can't, uh, cardiovascular patients, end-stage kidney patients, and diabetics. It took me a couple of weeks to figure out why those three, because it should have been lung patients, right? It should have been COPD, emphysema, all of our typical risk factors for flu. In fact, it's a very simple solution in that those three conditions happen to have one unifying factor, which is they get put on the same two drugs. They all get put on a statin drug and an ACE inhibitor blood pressure medication, diabetics, cardiovascular, and kidney disease. Those two drugs upregulate the ACE2 receptor in the lung for this virus. And so through the pharmaceuticalization of our elderly, we create this incredible receptor device for abnormal toxic clumps of coronavirus, and then we vilify the virus for these patients dying, not from infection, but from histotoxic hypoxia. 5,700 patients admitted to the hospitals in New York City were published in JAMA, and those 5,700 patients had no fever. Their average temperature was normal. Their average white blood cell count and their lymphocyte counts, normal, no signs of infection. And yet they were showing up blue, hypoxic, and with early organ failure, and days later would develop fluid in the lungs and secondary pneumonias in the hospitals, and then they would get the disseminated intravascular coagulation. They presented and died from histotoxic hypoxia that never got treated. And so there's a tragedy to the medical mind here in that we were told so much about this scary virus that it didn't let us think about the simple reality that was right in front of us is these patients aren't presenting sick. They're presenting poisoned. And and we just couldn't put those pieces together fast enough because we kept believing in this virus story. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, What I love so much about your discourse is uh, whenever I've heard them, Zach, you always uh, bring it back down to the most um, sacred, um, the sacrament of the relationship between man and nature, simply put. And that really is is the restoration of, of sanity, the restoration of, of consciousness. It's all connected to that uh, reclamation or restoration, that relationship between man and nature. Now, knowing what you know, and with your best doctoring hat on, um, what is the path of least resistance in your view to the restoration of the seminal relationship between man and nature? Is it a wholesale um, uh, dissolution of the petrochemical industry and the agrochemical industry, for instance? Is it a, a complete revivification of our understanding of air, water, and so I mean, what, what is the seminal piece that, re- that we, we're required to look at if we're to reclaim this seminal relationship between man and nature? That's such a good question. I love that question. I've never been asked that. All these things that I do, it's so beautiful that nature has our template to a new humanity. It's not a new like economy. It's not like a new, you know, philosophy of energy. It's a new humanity that is waiting to emerge from mother nature. And the, the template is fascinatingly, I believe, founded in soil. Soil is arguably the most intelligent technology that's been created by life. Uh, In a single, you know, milligram of soil, you have more organisms than our cells in the entire human body. You know, you've got just billions and billions and billions of of microorganisms that are working together to create the, the very matrix of life within that tiny little pixel of soil. And so it gets me so excited when we start to look at what is happening as a revolution now in agriculture, which is regenerative ag. And regenerative agriculture is a a, a situation where we help the farmer move from a philosophy and mentality of I need to produce more and more yield of corn or soybean out of this acre to I need to build more and more soil within this acre. And as soon as they turn their attention to the soil and go into a co-creative process with mother nature at the soil level, 
they have no weeds. They have no, you know, pests attacking their, their crops. And their crops get more abundant over time, not less abundant. And so it's just this exciting generative effect that happens there. And there's immediate social and spiritual ramifications that these farmers get to reconnect to the spiritual experience of being a steward of land. For two, you know, generations, they have been dumbed down to being chemical technicians that are trying to micromanage nature on those pieces of land to their own demise. The farms are going out of business for lack of fertility, for, for lack of you know, economic capacity under the weight of so many chemical inputs that are bankrupting the farmers. And so you free them up from that and you stop spraying. And interestingly, you stop tilling the ground and suddenly it all comes back to life. And it heals so much faster than it got destroyed. It can take two generations to utterly destroy this, the soil systems. And so you, you can't grow anything more out of that without massive chemical input. But with one season of letting off that, 30 years of damage can be reversed and wow. you see life returning abundantly. And so mother nature, when we get out of the way, is going to explode with life. And we've seen this written in her code in previous extinction events. We have five big extinction events on the planet before this one that we're engineering currently. And in those five extinction events, every single time life came back more abundant with more biodiversity and more intelligence following the extinction event. This gives me goosebumps because it means that mother nature has in her template the, the pattern of stress and recovery. An extinction event actually induces a massive transformation of the virome. The viruses actually get to proliferate faster and through more creative you know, variation than ever before because of the severity of the stress put on by an extinction event. And the result is many more variants of genomic code, many more variants of genomic variability and adaptation coming out of those extinction events. And so we lose 87% or 97% of life on earth with these extinction events. And it comes back over the next millions of years, even more robust. We have an opportunity. If we align our food and soil system, that will clean up our air and water immediately. The air pollution is not just because we're producing too much carbon, it's because we killed the lungs of the planet. If the soil is allowed to breathe again, it can absorb 2,400 gigatons of carbon a year. We only produce 30. 2,400 gigatons of carbon a year is, is the reserve just in the topsoil. In the deep soils, you're up to 10,000 gigatons. In the deep ocean, you're at 10,000 or 100,000 gigatons. This planet is a carbon machine. It's how life happens. It is the currency of life. It is so beautiful that there is carbon on this planet. We would not have life without it. And we've demonized that. And so now you hear that we've you know, got too much CO2 and we need to sequester the CO2. So we're spending billions of dollars to pay engineers to pump CO2 out of the atmosphere and store it in tanks so that it can't get back into a plant to feed an animal to create energy on li and life on Earth. Carbon. And Right. And they want to wear. They want you to wear masks now and breathe in CO two and poison yourself. So, <laughs> crazy stuff, huh? It's crazy stuff. And you know, if you want to get into the mask for a moment, it is you know. So first of all, viruses spread without human respiratory droplets. It spreads. Second of all, the mask doesn't work, and it's been proven over and over again. You know, a nice little study for coronavirus was done that showed that if you put a, the N95 mask, the gold standard of respiratory, you know, surgical mask or, or respiratory, you know, influenza protection mask on individuals that have coronavirus and are actively, you know, producing that virus, there is no detectable virus on the inside of the mask as they're breathing in it it's all coating the outside of the mask when you swab the outside of the mask. So it's gone right through the mask and is hanging out on the moist droplet surface on the surface of the mask, waiting for somebody to, to swipe that and pass it on in a respiratory droplet. So we're probably creating a massive natus of, of virus on the surface of all these masks that we're, we're walking around with. And then we take that mask off and we set it down on a counter and you've got this pool of, of respiratory droplets, you know, that are now there. So, it, we're, we're creating literally these natuses of it instead of, you know, evenly dispersing it through the environment so there's not clumped, you know, viruses. And that's always the problem. If you get too much virus in a space, you don't have a biologically balanced space, you could cause a problem. And so the masks are, be, you know, becoming this like clumping mechanism for all the virus there. And every time you now blow out, you've got this, you know, clumped respiratory virus that can spread off the surface of that, that mask. 
And so we, we know that it's not protecting us from infection. And yet, why are we so eager to do it? And I think this gets at a deeper issue around where we are psychologically and spiritually as humanity, yeah. is I think yeah. we want to wear a mask. Ah. I think we were so right. eager to put these masks on because we wanted to do that because we we're not comfortable with ourselves. We are insecure as a species, and we would like to cover up. I think there's a subconscious desire to meet that, this. That's, that's, that's fascinating. I love that, Zach. I mean, I've been calling it a ritual humiliation exercise, which I foundationally believe that this has been engineered as part of a, a broader occultic uh, ceremonial ritual humiliation of humanity in order to, in a sense, shock doctrine us into acquiescence of the next great uh, engineered horror, whatever that may be. And the business of masking ourselves from ourselves is about masking ourselves from our reason and our consciousness and so on but I love what you say and I think you must be right because before anything is done to us we have to permission it and so we call it in I think we've called the whole thing in like why did the world economy stop for a virus that was causing we knew I, with those first cruise ships we knew that the mortality was going to be 0.1 to 0.3 percent if you have a calculator and you can read the newspaper article it says there's 3700 people on the ship they're sequestered for 14 days together and three people die you've got a very low mortality rate and so you got a 0.1 percent you know mortality rate and yet the whole world stopped because we wanted to. We so mm. desperately wanted to stop the global transportation. We so desperately wanted to stop driving to the work that we don't even understand why we're driving to that office every day. We so desperately wanted this change to happen. And we blamed a virus to justify what this world most needed. And didn't this world most need a break? This world needed a pause. And mm. talk about a global meditation, right? One of my colleagues did a beautiful you know, piece on this on my Instagram takeover last week. And he said, this was the most extraordinary meditative event in history. For the first time, all of humanity focused on one thing for not a day, but for weeks. And we focused our attention on this virus and we gave it all of its power and we gave it all of this stuff. But, it, but what a wonderful thing to see the power of focusing yeah. all human ingenuity and human attention in one space. And what we saw was people doing the opposite of what they could have. Yes, you know, the media emphasized the, the bad stuff going on, whatever. But what I saw in my communities around the world, when I, I was coming through Australia into Fiji and then to Hawaii, as everything started locking down. And what I saw was, yes, some fear, yes, some concern about what's going on. But people got together with the people they loved and they started rearranging their lives, rearranging their priority lists for, to create something beautiful. People were starting to create art again that they didn't have time to do. People were creating music again. People were creating, you know, new, new books that they've been meaning to write. And so humanity, through their, their meditative moment, became a creative machine again. And that is the hope for me, is that as we approach our extinction event, we're 60, 70, 80 years, depending on the math, we're a few decades away from death. We are now on our hospice moment as a species. After 200,000 years, our experiment is about drawn out. And so we have to either transform as we step through the veil and back into the energetic state of soul beings, or we will participate in the most transformative, co-creative, genomic explosion of biodiversity on the planet that's ever been seen because every extinction event will hold more bounty behind it. And so I believe that we are yearning for something we cannot imagine. And we are allowing governments in the fall of an empire to create a military state perhaps and everything else it might do because we need it. We need to be torn down to our foundation to recreate something that's never existed before. We will birth a new economy. We will birth new, new currency that is non-fiat, that is not backed by military clout, but is backed by human goodness and joy, a currency that would, would be measured not by the amount of stuff it makes, but by the amount of joy and the amount of hope that it brings into those that it, it, it is fueling. And so we have an opportunity to realign currency. We have an opportunity to realign transportation, energy, and all these other sectors, but most of all, education. 
we don't know what a human species looks like when it's in balance with its ecosystem. We have been functioning as a rapidly growing cancer on the surface of the planet. We take more resources than we can make, and so we're, we're sequestering and absorbing and, in the meantime, destroying life on Earth, just as a cancer will do in a body. We are a cancer on the planet because we haven't reached a homeostatic level of how many humans should be in a space and how should they act. And the way that we do that, the way that we achieve that almost overnight is to educate women globally. The education of women always changes the demographics of family size and it creates a homeostasis of human population. And so we don't need to genetically engineer things. We don't need to, you know, widespread try to vaccinate with, you know, abortifacients. We don't need to do any of that because the global population will balance itself around education. And so the education of women in particular will be the vindication of, of the species and of the planet as we see those women not just get educated, but actually birth a new feminine archetype within our transportation and energy sectors, within our education sectors. If we follow the feminine archetype, then we can do that as men and women. If we start to follow a process-oriented rather than goal-oriented path, we will see so much hope break forth. We will see so much you know, co-creative force and nurture come out of what we are doing. And so I believe that we have created the current paradigm. I don't think it was inflicted upon us. I think that even as scientists, we wanted to, the, the idiocy and everything else that we kind of collectively did here and we closed our eyes to the reality and everything else because we want it to collapse. We, we desperately want the old paradigm to move on because as a physician it is not rewarding to work in hospitals where you never breathe fresh air, you never see the outdoors, and you see all your patients die around you. This is horrific. It's a nightmare as a physician. We want yeah. a different thing, and we don't yeah. know how to stepwise get there because there is no stepwise change that allows you to go from completely down the wrong rabbit hole to the right rabbit hole. You need to let the rabbit hole collapse completely. And so I think as scientists and physicians, we're closing our eyes on some level to say, well, let's let the system collapse and then let's rebuild something new. Good. And Very good. That, Make that's 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 makes a lot of sense thank you uh, my fifth question very important question the most important question of all um if you had to spend an eternity on a desert island with either anthony fauci or bill gates or melinda gates which would it be <laughs> <laughs> you know um i don't know melinda gates by personality well enough i uh, you know to to put her into that equation you know um I think of the two that I know that I can, you know, dialogue with the best, I think it would be Bill. I think that, you know, when you watch that recent documentary on Bill's brain, I think it was called or something like that, um, it's, you have an individual who has an extreme analytical mind and he's trying to solve a problem that he sees on paper. He's in a diner in a greasy spoon diner and he's sitting there with his buddy and they're going to solve polio, you know? And so they, they're mapping it out and they're showing each other the maps of where the polio jumps up and then they pound down the polio there by rushing into vaccine. And then it pops up right where it had been a couple years before and they're playing this whack-a-mole game with polio. And the, the easy you know, discussion that I will have with Bill is what if you, there's actually a three-dimensional chessboard here? Right now, you're running around on this two-dimensional board trying to pound out a virus that's been there since way before mankind. But nonetheless, you're trying to pound it out. But you, you were given the wrong board. The scientists that are advising you gave you the wrong playing board. You, in all of your intelligence and all of your analytical mind, can't win this game because they gave you the wrong board. Let me give you a three-dimensional board, Bill Gates, and let's start playing chess on a three-dimensional board where nature is allowed to be in three dimensions and the human immune system is no longer seen as human, but is actually a global immune system that is not about killing things and, and domination of a space. It's about a homeostasis. It's about balance between species within our bodies. And so when do we create that three-dimensional map what did the, what is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation put their money to? I think I can help you spend those billions of dollars to create the most resilient and healthy human population that's ever existed that will be in a balance. And population will not be a problem because we will have funded 
the education of women in Africa. We will have funded the education of women in the Middle East and beyond. And we, India will, will be a, a, a stalwart, you know, place of education for women. And we will see an explosion of, of, of new companies and new ingenuity coming out of Africa and India because of the, the feminine archetype that we could allow birth into these spaces. And the three-dimensional playing board will allow us to understand how to come into a, a resilient relationship to Mother Nature, and we will no longer have to be in a warfare mentality. And that's going to free up all your time, Bill Gates, to, to solve the only viruses that have ever caused any harm directly to humanity, which are the computer viruses that are fucking up our communication network. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry for that word. I guess we're on live here. I, I'm sorry. No problem at all. Edit that. But the reality is it is – our demonization of nature that yes. has now allowed us to build the templates of computer yeah. viruses and the like that are causing harm. And so we can, we can pervert nature into our technology and we will do great harm for it. Yeah, You've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of computer viruses every day that slow down human to human interaction. And this this human-to-human -human interaction is the ingenuity of the planet. It wow. is the ingenuity of, of Mother Nature herself. This is what she wants, is for humans to finally connect, not through combat and not through war, not against her or the, each other, but to connect over the opportunity to raise consciousness, to ratchet up the possibility of a new place and a new possibility of a new relationship to one another where we see that communication and biodiversity rule the game. Right. And the more biodiverse you make your society, the more intelligent you get, the more stable you get, the more biodynamic you get, the more creative and, and wealthy you get. Yeah. Biodiversity and freedom of communication, and we win the game. Very the facts have taught us those, those basic right. truths. Well, that's great. So you, you, you've taken Bill on, on your desert island, and I, I'm, I'm stuck with Fauci, which actually I'd prefer because I reckon he could knock together a pretty good ravioli at a push. <laughs> and if he stepped out of line, I could kick the shit out of him because he's a small guy. But that's me. My final, final question to you, which technically is my fifth question, is how long is the human body designed to live absent any toxification whatsoever in the air, the water, or the soil? So at the biology level, we, we have all the mechanisms to live, you know, a, a very, you know, eternal life, it looks like. Like, we haven't found yet the limitations of biology. We thought it was telomeres. We've thought, we've thought it's the methylation clock. But, but as soon as we find something that we say, oh, here's the limit of biology, two years later, we find out that there's an enzyme that reverses that. And so, you know, it, it, with each step as we go deeper, we find out there is no biologic limit. I think what there is is a spiritual limit right now. And for a species that is not conscious yet, that is not plugged into consciousness fully, it is dangerous. And so I think we have a spiritual limitation on us that's keeping us from our full potential because until we align ourselves with Mother Nature, we are a destructive force. And life should be limited in that destructive force. And so what we see is it's our belief system. In the same way that we want a mask on, we want to die at 78 years of age on average right now because we're too exhausted. We're too exhausted by the broken relationships. We're too exhausted by uh, our own insecurities. We're too exhausted by the struggle of being alive today. And so we want to die at 78. It's yeah. that spiritual exhaustion. It's the, it's the mental exhaustion of being in a state of physical you know, being that is not plugged into the consciousness of Mother Nature. When we are separated from Mother Nature, we don't have the will to live long. And so we give up that life at an average of 78 years in, in the Western civilization. Fantastic. When we de develop a consciousness and we plug back in, we will want to live long when we are not exhausted by our own depression, anxieties, and broken relationships. And so uh, I think we have a spiritual limitation, not a biological limitation. That, that's a beautiful, beautiful dispensation of wisdom. Thank you. I truly appreciate that. I mean, it's my understanding as well that the human body is designed to live limitlessly, absent the detoxification. And uh, I, yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. And really, it's, it's really about how, how wisely we dream, is it not? 
and how we rid ourselves of this 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 shadow alphabet and so much of it has been been foisted upon us in in the victim the victimhood of 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 arcane civilizations and usury and uh, supremacy and exploitation manipulation all of that all of that shit that permeates our our history, but I, I, I agree with you, Zach. We, we mu- now we we must certainly be approaching, if not right at that precipice, of true of true becoming emancipation, and it, it should happen in the blink of an eye. If you consider the uh, visions of the apocalypse that we're witnessing as a species right now, um, and you know I, I do say to as many people who ask me the question, this is going to you know disappear as quickly as it emerged, this insanity. Would you agree with that? I think so, in the sense that um, I don't think it's going to happen to all of us at once. I, I think there will be, um, but for that instance of plugging into consciousness is absolutely instantaneous, right? And so um, the, the biophysics of this planet are fascinating right now, you know, and you, know, you can go back to Fi- Dr. Feynman's lectures that he did at Stanford and stuff like that in, in the mid 20th century, laying out the first to 17th dimensions and what those meant for the planet. and and the prediction that this planet would move from a third dimension vibrational state to a fourth and a fifth, that's now happened. We're now somewhere between fourth and fifth dimension and and the switch from fourth to fifth is instantaneous, but it only happens in in pockets uh, of energy within the planet. The fourth happened pretty much universally, but the fifth is an interesting dimension that it doesn't require everything to go at once. And so in the same way that we're bouncing between fourth and fifth dimension as a planet right now, the, and that that's not to say that there's i mean it's weird to talk about fourth and fifth dimensions if it's a physical structure it's an energetic structure right it's it's in the vacuum yeah. space it's in the movement of energy through the planet is starting to shift and so i think we're in the process of either seeing increased friction in our lives because we're trying to cling to a three-dimensional reality or newfound freedom that's instantly discovered because we let go of the past and we're willing to flow into a fourth and fifth dimension planet that's going to keep evolving and and the planet has to evolve because it's an energetic being itself it's this energetic force and it has to obey biophysics and, and astrophysics laws and what's happening right now is we are inflicting upon ourselves the second law of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics is one of the most profound you know physics laws tested across all levels of fractal existence on the planet and the universe but it it is such a simple law it says that any system that you put in isolation is going to increase its chaos right and we have as a species isolated ourselves from our nature that we were born within. We've also isolated ourselves from one another. We have used technology to isolate ourselves from our own families. And so we are isolating ourselves and therefore increasing the entropy or chaos within our systems. And as a species, you can just see the chaos just like threatening every day to blow us apart. And yet we keep coming back together again in a syntropy moment in the opposite of entropy. Syntropy is the spiritual desire to to reorganize pattern within chaotic systems and so we have a syntropy tendency because we're not physical beings we're spiritual beings here on purpose ready to met out the most beautiful joy and the beautiful most beautiful love to one another and we have to do a syntropy moment to do that and to do that we have to become a non-isolated and so what gets me excited about you know something like black lives matter is the English words there, Black Lives Matter, sound very isolating and and sound disconnecting, and they can be used that way. But what's really happening, I believe, in the energy below those words is let's reconnect the minorities that have been suppressed and systematically and systemically abused. If we reconnect that, we are gonna see a, a centropy moment for all of the species. And so when we see a horrific event, whether it's a, a Vietnam War in South Asia or you know, massacre of, of black people in the streets, whatever it is, if we rush our attention there and say, this is the horrific results of disconnect and isolation, let's reconnect with love to these people. And there will be a centropy event within our species where we reorganize, we decrease the chaos for our reconnection to that one individual that became isolated. And we see this in our cancer patients in clinic every day. It's 
a year in, year and a half into a cancer journey where the patient has been taught that this cancer is part of their body that is a result of isolation and loneliness and in, therefore increase in chaos within that single cellular system that's now threatening the, the whole organism. And if you help them love that organism, that, that cell system back into their body, stop fearing the cancer, stop mm. having paranoia over the cancer, instead see this as the greatest gift that they've ever had because it has reorganized their whole view, world view. Mm. And they are loving differently. They're, they're tasting differently. Yeah. They're seeing yeah. differently. Yeah. It's reorganized their whole reality. And a year in, year and a half in, they say, this cancer was the greatest gift that I have ever been given. It has totally transformed me. Mm. That's where we are as a species now. We have our terminal cancer diagnosis, but we can step off of our hospice situation by reconnecting and we will heal so deeply. And as you said, so rapidly, we will so rapidly heal as a species when we reconnect. And I want you guys to, in the audience to think about what you've been feeling the last four months and then transmute that. Because I think there's a lot of paranoia, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of sense of us and them. They are inflicting us with this thing, or they are telling us these lies. We are creating those lies. We are a species that is in a chaotic, entropic en environment. We have created the chaos within us. We have created the chaos of our minds through our isolation. What you are feeling is not us and them. What you are feeling is us in chaos. And if we reconnect, we will feel singularity. We will feel this extraordinary thing where there is no loneliness left. There is no isolation left. And we will create so much differently, whether it's the buildings we live in, whether it's the, the love we make, we will create so differently when we are connected and the syntropy happens and it will be a beautiful thing. And there will be no, we'll find out there is no conspiracy theory. There was only isolation. There was only loneliness. There, there, there was no, no deep state as it was. There was just a deep mind that was isolated and it was a human mind that was isolated. And we created that. We did that. We, we are part of that. The deep state is our subconscious maybe of, of a species that's in isolation. And the subconscious is chewing us up just like my subconscious does when I allow myself to be lonely from my wife and loved ones. When I isolate, I can self-abuse myself. I can come up with the darkest stuff in, in the universe through that subconscious mind. Mm. We see that reflected in what's often referred to as the deep slate or the cabal. I hear all these words. And it's like, that sounds like my subconscious. That sounds like what we're doing. <laughs> we are creating this thing. And if we choose to reconnect, it will dissolve instantaneously because it cannot exist in a place of syntropy. Beautiful. So through this great tribulation that we're clearly moving, we move into the absolution and the absolution is, can only ever be um, a repair from the trial of separation uh, into the next chapter of our spiritual unfoldment. Dr. Zach Bush, thank you so much. Such a beautiful conversation. Thank you. That was an incredible fifth dimensional conversation, birthing us into this new earth that we are all creating. Uh, fucking brilliant, Zach. I, I cry every time I hear you. And Sasha, you just, the added dimension to that. Um, thank you. My heart is so full and I know everyone listening in that this is gonna reach so many people. So I thank you both, and I encourage you, and thank you also, Zach, for making space for the feminine, the voice. I mean, bringing in the centropy and this conversation of the feminine voice. We have formed a Mama's Alliance, and this voice is being heard through this platform. We want to encourage everyone, whether they're doctors and scientists or philosophers or concerned citizens, but definitely the Mamas, to show up, get in the conversation, because we want to hear your voice. So that's the invitation, and I thank you for making space for that. So we encourage everyone, if you you haven't already registered for the World Health Sovereignty Summit um, on June 20th, 21st, we'll put the links below. It's reclaimyourlives.com and we want to hear from you. So thank you both. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So great. Thank you, thank you Zach. Lovely seeing you again. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you for the conversation.